Amen. And you, you've heard of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel in Genesis. You've heard of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus. You've heard of Rahab in Joshua and Deborah in Judges and Hannah in 1 Samuel. You've heard of Jesus' mother Mary and you've heard of Mary Magdalene. You've heard of Lydia and Tabitha. But I wonder if you've heard and or ever thought much about the five daughters of Zelophehad. Maybe not. <laughs> so many people are unnamed in the Bible. What is the name of Lot's wife? We do not know. Who was Noah married to? We do not know. What were Jesus' sisters' names? We know he had sisters. We do not know their names. The Gospel of Matthew and Mark mentions Peter's mother-in-law. What was Peter's mother-in-law's name? We do not know either. But we do know the names of the five daughters of Zelophehad. And I just want you to notice for a moment how unusual that is. That's not like a common thing. We don't get their names just once. Their names were already given in chapter 26. They are in tonight's passage in chapter 27. Their names appear, all five names, in chapter 36, the last chapter of the book. So if we're counting, and I hope you are, in the book of Numbers, these five daughters are given in their names four different occasions. Now, some time passes. Hold on, I'm not counting right. In Numbers, it's only three. I'm going to give you the fourth one. Outside Numbers. After Numbers 26, Numbers 27, and Numbers 36, the book of Joshua will mention their name the fourth and final time in the Old Testament. Joshua. Joshua 17, specifically. If you notice how often these very specific names from a very specific descendant are given, we should wonder, what do we need to learn about these ladies? And we also notice where we are in the book of Numbers. The last major census has taken place, which numbers the new warriors for the conquest that Joshua will recount. And that census was Numbers 26. So you might say that Numbers 26 is launching for us the latter sections of the book of Numbers. And what you need to notice is the daughters of Zelophehad are mentioned in the first chapter of that last section, Numbers 26. They're mentioned in the last chapter of that section, Numbers 36. Both the framing chapters of the last part of Numbers have these five names. And I'm just trying to press the point to say with you, well, then that's so unusual considering how many people's names we don't know and that we do know theirs and on four occasions in the Old Testament. So where did we see them prior? Numbers 26 tells us where. In Numbers 26, we find Zelophehad's name in verse 33. Numbers 26, 33, out of all the names and genealogical references, Zelophehad is the son of Hepher and had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Malah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. Those are the names we find in our chapter tonight. I would, I would want you to notice that in the genealogical references in Numbers 26, there is occasional sprinkled commentary on some names 
That's an example of such. There in Numbers 26, a little bit of an elaboration. We could notice in our chapter tonight why those five names mattered in all of that genealogical web of Numbers 26. Because those five daughters have a particular problem they're going to bring to the attention of Moses. First of all, consider with me the request in verses 1 to 4, and then the Lord's response in verses 5 to 11. The request of the daughters, verses 1 to 4, and then the Lord's response through Moses in verses 5 through 11. In verses 1 to 4, we're told that then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, and then his, the father, his lineage is briefly given, his ancestry. Where does he come from? Because not only are we interested in the fact that these five daughters are named, we wonder, well, where do they descend in terms of the tribe? If we go all the way back to Genesis, we're reminded that Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that become the heads of 12 tribes. Where does the daughter, where do the daughters of Zelophehad descend? Well, we're told here that their father, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, in verse 1. And then he was the son of Gilead, and he was the son of Machir, and he was the son, here we go, of Manasseh. So now we're tracing it back. These daughters are of the tribe of Manasseh. But we're also remembering that Manasseh is the son of Joseph. And the way you keep 12 tribes is when the Levites are set apart to do priestly work. Uh, the, the gap is no longer left at 11. Instead, the tribe of Joseph divides into two, Ephraim and Manasseh, therefore making 12 whole tribes again, which will receive inheritance. And that's why Manasseh, being a son of Joseph here, is where, she, where these daughters descend. So the father, Zelophehad, has a brief ancestry given. And then we're given the daughters' names. Not just that he had daughters, but all five of them. Mentioned in the last chapter, this one, Numbers 36, Joshua 17. These are the daughters of Zelophehad. While they do appear four times by name in the Old Testament, they do not appear by name at all. In the New Testament, the New Testament is not consumed with the people who descend from Manasseh. That's not the primary interest. When you do read genealogy stuff in Matthew and in Luke, it's very specifically aimed at the descent from Judah's tribe. And that's because Matthew and Luke are presenting to you the messianic pedigree that Jesus possesses with his ancestry. Therefore, not all the tribes at all, but rather Judah specifically is given attention. So these daughters are not mentioned by name in the New Testament. But we do find in verse 2, they approach Moses and Eliezer. We have to remind ourselves that Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest of Israel and is no longer alive. Aaron died, didn't he? In Numbers 20, Moses' sister Miriam and Aaron die in the same chapter's record. This occurs in the 40th year of the wilderness wandering. This means they are on, as the Israelites, the cusp of the promised land inheritance. It is nearer now than it's ever been. They are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They are in the plains of Moab. Moses will die in the end of Deuteronomy and Joshua will lead them into the land. They are in the final year of the wilderness wandering. And it tells us these five daughters come before Moses and before 
Eliezer the priest. We remind ourselves that Aaron is dead, so his son Eliezer is the successor. Eliezer is the new Aaron. He's the new high priest. Moses and Aaron are living on the eastern side of the tabernacle. If you read earlier in the book of Numbers, their families were positioned there on the eastern side. And she comes to where Moses, or they come where Moses and Eliezer are, and before also other chiefs and leaders among the congregation. This location matters because it's the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, some cities have specific locations where major business is handled. Somebody might say, well, I've got to go handle this particular piece of of business in my life, so I'm going to drive downtown. Or in the ancient world, you might think, well, I'm going to go to the city gate. I'm going to go to the city gate where this particular economic transaction or business contract is formalized. In the days of the tabernacle, it was common to view the eastern place of the tabernacle, where this entrance was, as a place where people could bring their concerns to Moses, and Moses would speak on behalf of the Lord. The Lord would speak to Moses and Moses to the people of Israel and guide them by the very words of God. So where do these daughters go? They know exactly where to go. They don't have to ask around in the camp. It's the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's where we take what our concern is. And they begin this way in verses 3 and 4. Our father died in the wilderness. We immediately realize these women have a father that was part of the wilderness generation that was judged over those 40 years. Our father died in the wilderness. In other words, that's a statement with some real context in Numbers. Because the idea of dying in the wilderness before the inheritance was part of a judgment from Numbers 13 and 14. And they say our father died. So we immediately know that he has died. And because they bring up the concern that he had no sons, it must be the case that their mother is also dead. Because there's no potentiality for like further sons to receive inheritance. They are likely in a situation where both parents are deceased and they mention their father specifically. There is a clarification in verse 3. They don't just say he's dead. They make clear when he died, or I should say when he didn't die. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died for his own sin. Well, that's a whole narrative story that's just been invoked with that little language, isn't it? Because number 16 tells us of the very grievous and outrageous rebellion of Korah, who was a relative of Moses, but not a descendant of Aaron. And Korah and others with him desired the priesthood. And the Lord judged them. And the earth opens beneath them. And the ground consumes not only Korah, but all who sided with Korah. And they say to Moses and Eliezer here, Our father died, but he didn't die with Korah. He wasn't one of those who had chosen the side of wickedness in that way. He died for his own sin. That's perplexed interpreters. What does it mean that he died for his own sin? It could simply mean he's part of that larger wilderness generation that had doubted the Lord 
in Numbers 13 and 14, and therefore many those among the many in that wilderness would fall over the course of those 40 years to complete the wilderness generation's judgment. So, when it says our father died in the wilderness, he didn't die like a rebel that joined Korah, but it may indeed have been the case that he died in the wilderness for his own sin like the others who died in the wilderness, having not believed the Lord in Numbers 13 and 14. We don't know anything else, though, about his faith and spiritual standing. Did he become one who did start following the Lord in Numbers, after Numbers 13 and 14? Did the judgment pronounced on them, which would not be reversed, still have an effect, though, on him, where he sought to do what was right and pleasing before the Lord? Perhaps we would hope so. The, they are clear, though, that he did not die in the company of Korah. One possibility for why that matters is that if you sided with Korah and the rebellion, that not only would your life have been lost in the judgment, but your family's inheritance might have been revoked. And so if they're going to bring an inheritance question to Moses saying, here's something that we think needs to be addressed, they need to make clear if if those in the company of Korah that died would have their inheritance uh, revoked altogether, Well, that's not our situation. Our father didn't die in that rebellion. He was not part of that. But their predicament at the end of verse 3 is he had no sons. Now, why does that matter? Because in the ancient world, inheritance was given to the sons. And the expectation was that a daughter in the family would marry into a family where the son had inheritance with that respective group. And it would keep land and inheritance clear so that things wouldn't be muddled and passed around from family to family or group to group, if you will. And here you have this situation where she says, we have, or whoever the spokesman is here, uh, we have no um, inheritance. Our father had no sons. The question put to Moses and Eliezer sounds like this in verse 4. But why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. It's an interesting question. Because the the precedent in the ancient world was clear. Will the Israelites actually do something different here? Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Now, It is the case that fathers would give their daughters a kind of inheritance. This was known as a dowry, where a father would ensure some kind of financial investment, whether this be clothes and money, jewelry or furniture. Uh, You could see a a kind of gifting and endowing with uh, some kind of support. But this is different than when the father dies and the inheritance is divided up among the sons. Here's the situation with the daughters of Zelophehad. Their father wasn't a rebel like Korah. He didn't perish in that rebellion. And yet he has no sons to receive the inheritance. And here's what the daughters are faced with. We're about to cross the Jordan River. Where are we going to go? Our family has no inheritance because our father has no sons. And you can imagine this sense of great need and conflict that they realize they're now going to express. So here's what John Calvin says. 
Calvin says the request of the daughters of Zelophehad demonstrates their faith in the promises of God. So consider here what they must believe in order for their request to be formed the way it is. They believe that God is going to give what he has promised to the Israelites. They believe it. They believe that they're going to cross the Jordan River and that allotments and inheritance will be received by the people of God. So you know what their statement is in verse 4? Give to us a possession. So I think Calvin is right. I think what you're seeing here are a group of five daughters who come to Moses and Eliezer and they make a request by faith. They are trusting in the promises of God. They are aware of what ancient precedent would be. And they see that an exception is reasonable in their case. Um, It tells us, as another writer put it, that the possession of the new land was though yet to take place. The daughters have no doubt about a successful conquest. So they believe that the Lord has promised the land. The people will enter into the land and the conquest and inheritance will be successful. This informs and motivates what they say to Moses and Eliezer. I think it's the right way to look at the text. So we look at verses 1 to 4, how they bring their request. Moses, in verses 5 to 11, will bring his request to the Lord and the Lord's response. Let's look at that now. In verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. This seems to be how multiple instances of legal decisions were applied and expressed. You might have a particular circumstance that arises, and there might not have been a general law that yet covers it. And so this scenario is brought to Moses or to one of the judges. The Lord's will is discerned and applied. And here you have in this story what will not only be applied to their scenario. If you look at the end of verse 11, and it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule as the Lord commanded Moses. What are we reading here? We're reading about, in real time, a formation of a law that will guide these specific circumstances. And here, Moses takes his case before the Lord. Now, the Lord says to Moses in verse 6, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. So there's no burying the lead there. We don't have to find that out at the end or something. It's like, right, this is, this is absolutely the right concern for them to have. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. That is an amazing statement. That is an amazing statement. Can you imagine how heart-lifting and encouraging this would be to the daughters of Zelophehad who are concerned, and rightly so, about what's going to happen on the other side of the river. And the word of God to them is that there is possession for you. Your father's name is not lost. And they're concerned about that. They're concerned about the name of their father. They're concerned about their present and future as his daughters. They know there are no sons. You shall give them possession of an inheritance. And then in verse 8, you shall then speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Their case, while arising 
as perhaps a request that looks like searching for an exception, becomes a new kind of precedent. And that's a beautiful thing. Their bold request to Moses and Eliezer, their speaking and confidence by faith at the entrance of the tent of meeting, will turn out to benefit anybody else who's ever in their circumstances. Really good news. Now in verse 9, And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. Which of course would mean the, the, the uncles of the group, right? Father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, there's an order here, right, of what would get priority. So if we look at what he's saying here, it tells us in verse 8, if the man dies and has no son, then the inheritance is transferred. Now, the reason that language is given is because if the man has a son, the sons receive the inheritance, and therefore the family's land is kept intact. But if there's no son, then it shall go to the daughter. If there's no daughter, it shall go to the brothers. If there's no brothers, it shall go to the uncles and finally the nearest relatives. In other words, there will still be a situation where these daughters are taken care of and the particular priority in verses 8 through 11 given. Transfer to the daughter. If no daughter, then his brothers. If he has no brothers, then his father's brothers. If no brothers of the father, nearest kinsmen. And, and so there is a kind of priority that we can notice. But whereas other precedent might have excluded these daughters from it, the Lord's word includes them in it. Uh, um, it, it might even pa- cause another question, which the end of Numbers seems to address. What if these daughters from Manasseh, want to marry someone outside of Manasseh. So there's tribal territory over here and say Simeon's tribe. And they, they just really are fond of this particular gentleman from Simeon's tribe. Uh, you know, what are we going to do there? Because then there is this land issue. Well, that's not answered yet in Numbers 27. You got to get to the end of the book of Numbers for that. And I won't tell you how it ends. In Numbers 36, they address the fact that if this allowance is made for these daughters from Manasseh, how can further instruction guide their choices that if they do marry as those from Manasseh's tribe, the land remains in the proper allotment? Uh, These things really mattered because the promised land was part of God's covenant with Abraham. It wasn't like looking at just any part of the globe and saying, well, you just sort of divide this up however you want. We must remember the importance and emphasis that the land of Canaan has for Abraham's descendants. And therefore, attention to how things are proportionally dealt out. And we learn from Numbers 26, the allotted territories are in proportion to the size of the tribe. And then the location of that allotment is drawn by the casting of lots. So the promised land is just not like any other territory. 
It's not. It is a unique place that would have a role in the Old Testament era, but also in a New Testament one. I do want you to look in Joshua with me for a moment. Look in Joshua 17. And uh, in Joshua 17, here's what we're going to notice. This is in a part of the book, after the conquests. This is after uh, a number of the victories that we're familiar with. All the stuff about Jericho and Rahab and Ai and all of the various battles that are earlier. Look in Joshua and in chapter 17. Tells us in verse 1, Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh. For he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemidah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. And now, verse 3, now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milkan, Tirzah, and they approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give to us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. There you have it. There you have the fulfillment in Joshua 17 of what God commanded in Numbers 27. In this Old Testament era, the promised land, these allotted territories and inheritance foreshadows the new heavens and new earth, new creation. There's a reason when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, he doesn't say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land of Canaan or the promised land. It's actually a very broad statement. Is it blessed are the meek? They shall inherit the earth. And that's because the Old Testament language of inheritance and promised land foreshadows that reality to come. The promised land was significant because it was a sacred space aiming in the same trajectory of Eden established in the beginning of Genesis that God would dwell with his people in creation with all restored and made new people raised and glorified and God their triune creator and redeemer being their God forever. What I think we can notice here is that this promised land hope these people who have a view toward the inheritance it matters to them because it's part of God's covenant promise. In other words, we're reading about, you know, here are these people from Manasseh. We're not from Manasseh. You know, we didn't descend from Machir and Gilead and all these people. But listen, if you descended from Manasseh, all of those names mattered to you. And if you look in Joshua 17 and you were part of the daughters of Zelophehad, it really mattered to you that what God promised, he kept his promise in. And that if he made a statement, he could be counted as faithful. So what I want you to notice is not just some of these names that uh, might not be big narrative names and that don't shine brightly even in the New Testament. And yet, and yet, were people who walked and spoke by faith in the promises of God. And they, like all the Old Testament saints who've gone before us, form the cloud of witnesses of those who hear what God has promised. And they said, I believe that what God has promised, he will keep. There is a new heavens and new earth coming. 
And Christ will return and make all things new. And none of God's people shall have to go to him on that glorious day and say, can we be part of those who inherit the new creation? Because all of God's sons and daughters shall reign with him. They shall inherit the earth. We read stories like Numbers 27, and it's why we can sing in Christ and by faith on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. The Lord is faithful to keep all of his promises. Just ask the daughters of Zelophehad. They trusted the Lord, and he did what he said he would do. Let's pray.